So John comes somewhat uh, full circle and brings us back to this strange character of John the Baptist. Uh, John repeatedly identified, John the Baptist repeatedly identified himself as the prophet who would prepare ye the way of the Lord, who would prepare the way of the kingdom of God to appear with a power that had not previously been seen. He believed that his cousin Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited king, and he was not afraid to pay homage to God as Messiah in Jesus Christ. If you remember going back to John 1, uh, it said, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed that I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? And he said, No. Are you another prophet? He said, no. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? Give us an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And then we get to John 3 today. Um, where John says some very similar things, John the Baptist. And Mike is going to put that up on the screen for us, and we can follow along. Thanks, bud. That after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, because John had not yet been arrested and put in prison yet. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Our, our ministry is drying up over here. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who's, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When you hear the phrase, 
I am the greatest. Who or what do you think of? Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Anybody else? That's exactly who I thought of. Right? I think of Muhammad Ali. Um, there was even a cartoon called I Am the Greatest. The Adventures of Muhammad Ali. I don't know if you've never, I've never seen this cartoon, but that's who I think of when I hear I am the greatest. It's been so infused into our world, into our culture. Became his catchphrase. And right, I think John rightly understands who Jesus is and takes a different tact. He says, Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the best. He's greater than Moses. He is greater than all the priests that have ever lived. He is greater than all the prophets that ever come before him. He is better than all the kings that have ever come before him or after him. Even more than King Solomon and King David. Actually, in two weeks, next week, um, we're going to be taking a break from John. So next week, um, we're going to have a, a topical sermon series on gratitude. What does it mean to be to have gratitude. And then um, for four weeks after that, going through the Advent series, we're going to take a look at how Jesus is greater than the priests, greater than the prophets, greater than all the kings. Um, there's uh, the offices of Christ where Jesus fulfills and shows himself greater than all the prophets, priests, and kings. And as we walk through Advent, we're going to look at all those things until we get to Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And our text begins once again with the Jewish leaders, those disciples as well, of John the Baptist, questioning what is going on around them. They see that something is happening, something's different, and they don't quite yet understand it. Even John's disciples are with him, and they've heard him confess about Jesus Christ, but they're still jealous of the ministry across the Jordan where Jesus is is baptizing now people. They don't know what it really means, what John's ministry is about and baptism is about. And John uses this opportunity to proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ. He identifies Jesus as the bridegroom, as the groom in a wedding which those Jewish people around would clearly understand and know that this means that Jesus is that awaited Messiah. Jesus himself actually says to them in Matthew 9, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day, is, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast and they will mourn because Jesus is no longer with them and yet they do not know that Jesus is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with them in his absence, and that he will be at the right hand of God advocating for them. In the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the bridegroom and the people, his bride, in Hosea, um, elsewhere as well, but in Hosea 2, it says, and in 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 that day, declares the Lord, you will be called, you will call me husband, and no longer will you call me Baal. No longer will you worship false idols, but I will be your one and only husband. For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. 
and I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I'll make you lie down in safety. Right? No more death or mourning or tears. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so we're at this, this time in the history of God and his redemptive story where he says that to the people of Israel. And he says, this is you. If you walk in faith and trust me, and there's someone coming who is the bridegroom. And now Jesus is here and there's this transition happening where there are some people in Israel believe that all these promises are all just political and that Jesus is the political Messiah, and he's going to raise up again this great nation of Israel so that they have access to their temple, they have their own leaders and their own governors and kings and armies, and no longer will be the, be under the oppressive thumb of Rome or of Babylon or of Egypt and enslaved to other countries. And this transition is confusing. That's why these Jewish leaders are asking these questions, because that's, that's what they've been thinking and been taught for hundreds of years. Jesus is saying, no, I'm the bridegroom, and I'm not here to be your political leader. And John's saying, I'm not the groom, but I'm just the friend of the groom. There's this time in like every wedding where the, every, like the wedding happens and everybody celebrates, and you kind of walk off to their drive off to the reception and um there, there's somewhat of, there's like this somewhat of a, a mourning right this, the wedding's over and that was exciting but now everybody's hungry and then like you know it's like the picture is happening it's going to take forever and you're mourning right <laughs> and he says i'm not here to mourn i'm here to rejoice and i'm here to invite others to this wedding I'm a friend rejoicing because salvation is here. And John says, he must increase and I must decrease. My baptism is not about me. My ministry is not about me, it's about Jesus. All right, John the Baptist is actually confessing question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. All right, what is the chief end of man? You guys, you guys know this? Mike, you got this? Audrey? What's the chief end of man? To glorify, glorify God and enjoy him forever. There you go. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1,600 years before that was even written, John confessed it because it was rooted in scriptures like this. He must increase, I must decrease. I must glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he said, John, what is your chief end? He says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He must increase, I must decrease. And this is our sole focus as well. Right? The believer's sole focus is the glory of Jesus. John is using his calling that has been given to him to glorify Jesus. If we apply this to, to us, if you're a Christian, your calling, your vocation primarily is to glorify Jesus whether it's as a husband or as a wife or as a child, right, as a kid in a family, or as a nana as a papa, right? 
If you're a pastor or a deacon or an elder or you're working in the children's ministry or you're a salesman, right? Wherever you are, your vocation is primarily about glorifying Jesus. It's interesting, I think, because people might think, well, if, you're, if your vocation is primarily like in the church, like you're a pastor, Joe, so like, that's pretty easy, glorifying Jesus. Well, you can think of dozens of pastors, of ministries that aren't about glorifying Jesus, but about glorifying ourselves. Martin Luther calls that a theology of glory. How can I increase my power, my providence, my money, right? Those ministries that are dedicated to health and wealth. And not about Jesus Christ. Whereas Christ is only a a route to me getting mine and what I get. There are ways to use your vocation, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, to the glory of God or to the glory of yourself. Right? Even as we sometimes desire to do something else, right? To do, to do something else that um, I remember in college, I don't know why, because I knew I wasn't musically talented at all, but I wanted to be a worship leader, like to be up front. I think because it was like cool. Right? There was something called um, Warriors on Thursday night, and it was like everybody had to go to chapel, right? We even had chapel cards where we had to like hand in to make sure all our chapel cards were in by the end of the semester. Um, it was like Warriors, was actually the place that people wanted to go to because you didn't have to hand in chapel cards. But it was this cool thing. And like I realized very early on, I had no desire to learn how to play the guitar. I had no skills in singing or leading in that way. And um, there was humility in that, at that realization, right? Um, John didn't use this occasion as he could have so easily done to bolster his own ego and self-importance complain about the ministry across the river and how everybody was going there to be baptized. But he was at ease with the place and the calling that God had given to him. Um, And there are many of us and there are many Christians that are not at ease in the gifts and talents and positions that God has made them. Right? In those, those callings and those vocations that I mentioned earlier as a mother, as a daughter, husband or wife and deacon and elder or something else. That there's this, this this unease that we might feel like we're called to something else, maybe something bigger, something better. But we look at John, he says, I am not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ. He even says in verse 27, a man can have nothing except what is given to him from heaven. Talk, talk about a humble statement, realizing that, that realizing that whatever we have is given to us by God, whatever circumstances, whatever vo- calling and vocation, And place has been given to us by God from heaven. And this is good news. Because whatever is given to us, whatever position or station you have in life, whether it's low or whether it's high, is considered in this world, we have the ability to glorify God in that and enjoy Him forever. I think in this world there's this great purposelessness, this great hopelessness, that's really infected our culture, 
Right? We are discontent because we see what others have and we don't have it, and we are programmed both internally and externally to be jealous of that and those things. Right? That our identity has been so connected with things or with power and position that when we do not measure up or we do not have those things, we're filled with want and despair, and we don't, we don't have gratitude and thankfulness and realization that it all comes from God. John gives us hope. He gives us a great hope by pointing us to the one who gives hope. Realizing that some of us need to be lifted up out of despair and some of us need to be knocked down into humility. In a world where power is everything, um, we are in a church where um, elders are supposed to be humble and servant leaders and not rule with a dictatorial iron fist. It's a place that's supposed to be different than the world around us. Right? Some of us are, are used to getting our own way. Maybe you were raised like that. Maybe you were spoiled. You had things that this world can give you. You've had a job in which you were in charge, and that's your life. But the church doesn't work like that. Because he will become great. Remember the disciples were arguing over who got to sit next to Jesus at the table. And those who wanted to be at the head go to the bottom. And those who are at the bottom go to the head. He says, you must decrease and I must increase. My prayer is that the worship of Trinity Grace Church will continually lift up the low and bring down the proud. For us to realize that if you are in despair and you are in want, you are struggling, that Jesus is there to lift you up. And if you are proud and powerful, that you will realize that there's things outside of my pride and outside of my power that I cannot have, I cannot grasp, save for the grace of Jesus Christ, and that will bring you down low. And that we point everyone to Jesus as the greatest. But even Muhammad Ali was made humble. Right? Sickness and death even afflict the greatest, but not Jesus. He is so great that he rules over death. He rules over life. He rules over sickness and in health. He must increase. We must decrease. Now, have you ever seen some videos have been going around, I think over the past few years, of... Um, the persecuted church in other countries receiving a shipment of Bibles. Where they're, they're literally tearing open the boxes to get the word of God. And like joy and tears on their face and holding up that they finally have it. And yet we are in a country so full of marketing and um, excess 
that we can have literally any kind of Bible we desire. I mean, there's like the fireman's Bible, the warrior's Bible, the soldier's Bible, the mom's Bible, the dad's Bible, the single mom's Bible, the single dad's Bible, the sports Bible, the athlete's Bible. There's Bibles for like for everything because we've so marketed it. You can go down to Barnes and Noble, not a Christian bookstore, and buy the Bible. You can go on Amazon and search Bible and get like 10 million results and order 10 million versions of the Bible. When you think about that in comparison to these the persecuted church and the joy that they have when they receive their first Bible. Or maybe their Bible was confiscated from them and they received a new one. And you see, I think that um, we've so marketed God's word and the church that the word of God isn't enough anymore. We want more. We want our church to have all the amenities of a mall. Because we're not satisfied with the word of God. We want the coffee shops and the million-dollar youth programs and the fog machines, professional everything. It seems that the intentions usually start outright, but they eventually um, go down the drain in a whirlpool of, of Christian consumerism. The idea that bigger is better. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because we don't have fog machines, right? We don't have all these amenities, but I mean, we, we comparison to the persecuted church, we have so much as we sit here in a government-owned building at very low cost, with the computer and projector and all these other amenities that we have. Even the cool little thing that puts the juice exactly in the glasses. Like, <laughs> and we complain if that thing gets broken, how hard and difficult it is for, to fill the communion cups. We have to continually remind ourselves that Jesus is the greatest. Why? Because he's the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. I mean, that's what John's saying in the second, the second part of the scripture. saying those who put their faith in Jesus, who trust them with their total life, have eternal life. Right, think about those that have called out to the world that a judgment is coming. I'm not, I'm not even saying Christian. Right, those, there are people crying out today about artificial intelligence. You know, watch out, it's coming. It's, gonna dis- it's, it's, a, it's a judgment coming on us. Have you seen those uh, Boston Dynamics or whatever, those robots that can like now walk and jump and run and f- do flips? It's, term- it's Terminator. I mean, really, like, you get kind of scared. Like, you're like, the judgment is coming. It's- James Cameron was a prophet when he, when he wrote that movie. We warn that things are going to get worse, and yet we still try to be our own gods. It's like, no, we're creating these things to better our lives. Robots are going to serve us, and it turns out we might serve them. I mean, I think of Noah, Noah building the ark as someone crying out as a prophet into the wilderness, to the world around him, saying a judgment is coming, inviting all those around him, come into the ark and be saved. Imagine, he probably had local carpenters helping him build this very boat every day, working with them, saying, come on the boat. You know, I'm building this. Yeah, you've told us a million times. 
you should come on the boat. It's not too late. Come on the boat. Be saved. This is why John is, is, is here. Right? He's preparing the way of the Lord. He says, there's a judgment coming. Be saved. And yet these carpenters who saw the boat we built, who were around Noah this whole time, did not get on the ark. And John's saying, believe in Jesus. Get on board. He is the Savior. This is true. Jesus is the greater ark. We talk about Jesus, the greater prophet, the greater king, the greater priest. There are these, all these things in the Old Testament that are types and shadows of Jesus. He is the greater ark. And actually, first, uh, uh, Peter alludes to this in 1 Peter 3. He says, uh, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, right, in the Spirit and in water, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal. He's literally saying this baptism of water, which represents the Spirit, saves you from the flood. Saves you from judgment. That Jesus is this greater ark. In a sermon by Billy Graham, he calls, uh, G- Billy Graham calls Jesus the ark of safety. <clears throat> he writes, uh, Billy Graham uh, wrote this. He said, the Bible many times warns us that towards the end of history, as we know it, there will be a return to pre-flood conditions of gross sin and wickedness. Uh, the scripture say, says concerning the people of Noah's day, the, uh, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Christ also referred to this in Matthew 24 when he said, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Everybody around was just doing life. Even as Noah called to them, saying, there's a flood coming, there's a judgment coming, you will die. Everybody just acted as if normal. They went to soccer games, they went to weddings, they, they sat down and ate, they went to restaurants, they hung out at the park, they did all the things that normal people do and did not heed the warning of Noah. And they did all these things and they didn't know until the flood took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. It is raining. John says it's raining. Jesus says it's raining. We look outside and it is raining. Outside, uh, Billy Graham continues on. He says, outside the ark, men and women were struggling for their lives, clutching at pieces of driftwood until the pitiless hand of death reached up and drew them down beneath those cruel and relentless waves. All were lost, save for those eight aboard. There was not one soul outside the ark who did not perish. They had a chance, but they tossed it away. There are hundreds that day who are close to the ark and yet lost. So this fearful scene from the Bible is a prototype. It's a shadow of the day of judgment that lies before our world. And the ark is just a shadow 
of the one that saves. That Jesus is greater than Noah. Jesus is the ark. He says, get on board and be saved. Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this comes the judgment. Right? There are two sure things in this life. I mentioned last sermon, death and taxes. And there's a sure thing after death, and it is judgment. The ark is a symbol of Jesus Christ. In this day when the clouds of judgment are beginning to gather, Christ is that refuge. And he closes, he says, you must cross the threshold and pass into the ark. Accept Christ now as your Savior before it is too late. Are we going to be like John and proclaim Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He is the ark. Get on board. Will we do that as Christians? Will we proclaim, will we be bold enough? When people look around, they're going about their daily lives and nothing is different, nothing, you know, everybody dies, everybody lives, it's just to go about everything the same. And we proclaiming so that eyes may be opened, ears that are clogged may hear, hearts that are stone might turn to hearts of flesh. Not because we are so... Um, winsome in all that we do and we are so convincing but because the Holy Spirit is at work through us when we proclaim that Jesus is greater or if you have kind of been questioning whether or not to get on board it's the time to get on board Noah called and people refused rather grab onto driftwood like an idol than get on board the true ark So the question as we end today, will you get on board? Will you say Jesus is greater? Will you tell others that he is greater? That he is here to save you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus being revealed to us that he is greater. He is the best. There is none better. that we um, remember the words of Luke and Acts, that salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let that be our cry. Let that penetrate our hearts and our minds for those that have not yet yielded to the fact that Jesus is greater, that he is here to save us. Let them yield. Let us, as believers, who know this true fact, Be bold like John the Baptist. Be bold like Noah in his day. And we we know that the, the rains are here, and yet people look around and say, no, it is dry and sunny. Let their eyes be open to the true condition of their hearts and their lives and their future, we pray. In your name, amen.